Well, a couple of guys are standing around after lunch, and this new girl walks by in a very um, interesting outfit. <laughs> okay, all right. The outfit was like pretty plain, like real ugly. One guy lets out a low whistle, and the other one says, well, look at that, would you? They're barely hiding their snickers. Just then, too, their co-workers, women, come by and they lambast them for belittling this girl. How'd you like it if we did that to you, huh? Oh, look at what he's wearing. What kind of dumb shoes are those? Ooh, nice pair of pants, loser. You know, I mean, would it, what would it be like if women talked about men and the clothes they wear like you guys do us? The guys hang their heads and they apologize and, of course, they make for the exit. <laughs> the girls hump as they watch them retreat. And then they look towards the new girl who started this. And one shakes her head and says to the other, what does she think she's doing wearing that outfit? <laughs> you know, men watch men, women watch, or men watch women, women watch women. It, it, that is true. I guess men just aren't that interesting, that, you know, whether they dress well or not. I don't know. But there's another side of this I want us to consider. Why does the new girl dress like she does? You know, why is she an outsider? And now we're going to bring it home. What if the two girls watching her are Christians? What if instead of a socially inept person, it was one of those who dress provocatively? Now what? How would they ever talk to someone like that about Christ? How do we approach those people, the difficult people? Today we'll look at an example of how it's done. Jesus' conversation with a difficult woman, one that most folks wouldn't talk to at all. And the few that did, they weren't talking to her for her good. <laughs> they were entirely selfish in their motives. She was difficult. You know, how do you, how do you say this? <laughs> well, let's just learn about her as we go. Jesus had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay, our setting. Samaria was, all by itself, the wrong side of the tracks, okay? <laughs> Everybody from there was looked down was looked down on by the good people, the Jews. And the good people had as little to do with those people as they could. One can imagine some Jews who would rather starve to death than eat food prepared by a Samaritan. That should show you how despised the Samaritans were to these people. But right there was this, well, kind of a rest stop in the road, and it was the sixth hour of the day, around noon, and it was hotter than a pistol. They've been walking a long time. Jesus says, I'm tuckered out. I'm going to take a break. You guys go on ahead into Sychar and pick us up some grub. Okay? They take off and a woman from Samaria came to draw water. In the middle of a scorching day in the Middle East, she came to draw water. Why didn't she come earlier when it was cool? You know, when all the other women made the trek. Well, yeah, she's one of those women. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Okay, well, Jesus would be thirsty, and, and she does have something with which to draw water. 
So asking her for a drink might not be too far out, although it's pretty exceptional for a man to address a woman directly in that culture. And again, she was an uh, exceptional woman. <laughs> and this is, after all, Jesus. But we are left to wonder what was going through her head. How far does this guy want to go? Is he looking for something beyond water? Those people, and I know it's often their fault, but they get used a lot. And she's probably pretty wary. We've got to remember when we approach people who are from where this woman was, <laughs> that experience has taught them to watch their own backs pretty carefully. So we'll have to be very careful ourselves if we intend to help them. So she goes off on the us poor abused underdogs thing, you know, maybe a, a little self-defense. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Back then, everything shouted out a person's ethnic heritage, the clothing itself, how they wore it, their haircuts, accent, everything. So she didn't need an introduction to know he was Jewish. And she might be thinking, if this guy's really legit as a Jew, why is he asking me for anything? And she's well aware that they both know she is a Samaritan and one of those women. By the way, a little side note here. Jesus always asks, if you check the scriptures, he always asks people to do something before he blesses them. Whatever that is, miracle, whatever. And maybe, just maybe, we're supposed to ask people to get involved even before they're Christians. Even when they're pretty defensive. I'm not sure how that would work, but it is a possibility. And that's extra. It's for free today. You can just let it percolate under your hat there. Anyway, she asked a fair question, and Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. I don't know what she expected Jesus to say, but I'm real sure this was not it. <laughs> I mean, think about how this would sound if we didn't know who Jesus was. When I ask you for a drink, you should ask me for a drink. What? <laughs> and what do you mean, gift of God? Now we're bringing religion into this thing? Well, that's actually kind of true. <laughs> what is living water? And who in the world are you? What must her brain have been doing? When we talk to people, <laughs> we can't blast right out, Hey, are you born again? <laughs> they would quite correctly Look at us like we're Looney Tunes. We have to say things in an interesting manner. And yes, somehow to introduce religion, the spiritual, into the conversation. But in a way that makes them want to know more. Not saying everything, you know, not dumping the truck on them, you know, the whole truckload on them. But finding a way to connect to their world. She was there to get water, right? So Jesus offers living water. We have to connect with their world and introduce them to that which is beyond their world. Anyway, she's not really sure what to say, so she addresses the obvious first. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? 
of course, she misses the whole point. (laughs) But then she would, wouldn't she? It's pretty scary for those people to wade into such unfamiliar ground. Let them talk it out a bit before moving on. Be patient. This is tough when your whole life is like theirs. She's a little scared, but she does move to the who do you think you are question. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. John has already given us a setting, so we know she's talking about the Jacob from the Bible, the one God renamed Israel. But of course, she's not going to use that name since the Jews call their nation Israel and they don't let Samaritans call themselves Israel. But here's an interesting and I think important fact. The idea that Jacob drank from this well is strictly a Samaritan legend. There's no biblical support for it at all. In fact, she may be saying this to bait him to see if he'll launch into a verbal barrage against her. Jews were known to be pretty sensitive and protective about this stuff. Could she get him into a hot topic argument? You know, people do that. Well, let's not let ourselves be sucked into this sort of thing. Stick to that which is critical. Like Christ did, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In other words, the things of this world never truly satisfy. You've got to keep coming back again and again and again. But there is a way out where life doesn't wind down but gets ever better. You see how Jesus is leading her bit by bit ever closer to spiritual truth. (sighs) But she doesn't understand. So she responds like many in her position would flippantly. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here and draw again. You know, come on now. She knows he's not talking about water you drink. She's not stupid. But she is ignorant. And probably her ego is smarting a little. When, when you know you're ignorant, well, you feel stupid when that becomes obvious. <laughs> right? And she covers it up with an arrogant, flippant remark. And this poor woman, in a way, you've got to feel sorry for her. Jesus needs to bring her mind back to the right place. So he's about to slap her a good one. Go, call your husband and come here. Hmm. Remember what time it is and what they both know about why she's there right now? The woman answered him, I have no husband. Yeah, I'll say. Jesus said to her, you are right. You know, let's skip to the middle for a second. You are, let's skip the middle. You are right. What you have said is true. The whole thing? The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Five Husbands, not that you've actually been married to any of them. Now that's a slap, in case you didn't catch it. Jesus confronts her very directly concerning her sin, but not without compassion. 
his upholding of her statement, beginning and end, helps to soften the blow that they both knew was coming. I mean, everybody knows that. Everybody knows. Jesus had to, because she dropped into that flippant arrogance, he had to bring her back to reality. She is truly the one in need, after all. Pretending she's okay, or even better than others, won't help anyone, least of all her. Sometimes we have to say hard things. But if we can sandwich them in recognition of good, no matter how minor, it might soften the blow enough to keep them alive, (laughs) even while knocking them back a bit. And note, it was just the two of them. People can take correction a lot better when you aren't also embarrassing them in front of other people. There's this cute scene in that tongue-in-cheek comedy, Support Your Local Sheriff. If you haven't seen that movie, it's really a funny little one. It's after he arrests the bad guy in a bar full, full of people. And later the villain complains of being embarrassed in front of all my friends and the sheriff says, Oh, it's okay. I don't think you have all that many friends. <laughs> That's true, true. But but it's embarrassing to be corrected in front of a lot of people. So we've got to be careful when, as well as how, we make plain people's sins. And by the way, we're not Jesus, okay? In case you didn't know. We're not likely to miraculously know intimate facts of people's lives. But, as we studied over the past few weeks... That doesn't give us a pass on confronting people's sins. And if we love them, we will. But wow, that is difficult to do. So you pray for me and I'll pray for you. How's that? Does that work? (laughs) Since this discussion between the woman and Jesus has taken an obviously biblical turn, she tries to weigh in with really the only information she probably has. It's not much. But at least she tries. She says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> Gotta love that one. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Note first, Jesus doesn't talk about her sin anymore. So we go on in the story, he doesn't come back to it. It's out in the open, so get on with it. She's, she's not going to bring it up again. <laughs> but what she does say... People who don't really know the Bible can say some, well, really dumb things, okay? (laughs) One of my favorite stories along that vein has to do with an Irish woman who was clearly more religious than spiritual. She was talking to a world-renowned scientist who was an atheist. He had given a talk in Belfast and was now answering questions. This was the time when the factions who called themselves Protestant and Catholic were at war and killing each other and passions were very high. So she blasts out, Are you Catholic, sir, or Protestant? He says, Adam, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. Yes, but is the God in whom you do not believe Catholic or Protestant? (laughs) Uh, That kind of misses the point, doesn't it? Well, the woman in Samaria, she really misses the point too. But Jesus, once again, doesn't get sucked into side issues, but rather focuses on the important point. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, 
The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, Jesus does have to go back and correct her a bit. She has a common misconception that will stand in the way of her understanding the truth. And sometimes we do have to correct people's misunderstandings. So Jesus, about Samaritans in general, says, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Isn't this amazing? One of the greatest declarations Jesus makes is to one of those people. A used, loose woman outside a hick town in Samaria. It's amazing. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit, in truth. In truth, that was that was always known and, and done in true worship. But here we have to understand something. Centuries before, when the Jews came back from the exile in Babylon, the ancestors of these Samaritans opposed them, eventually building a competing temple. So the Jews had a temple in Jerusalem, the mountain there, and the Samaritans on Mount Gerizim. Each worshipped God there. About a hundred years before this conversation, a Jewish leader had destroyed the false temple in Samaria. So you can well imagine how touchy the subject was. Jesus doesn't dodge it. Your ancestors were wrong. And you, following their example, are wrong. Because the Jews did and do have a specific purpose from God. For salvation is to come through them, living in the system that God gave them. The exciting news is that the time for that salvation to come is now. Now it won't be the physical killing of animals in a specific place with a precise ceremony. Now it will come from the inside, still in truth, but straight from our spirit to God who is spirit. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Everybody, everybody was expecting the Messiah. I like it that, that then she says it in Greek, Christ. Maybe using the Hebrew word made her a little nervous. But everybody believed someone was coming. We have records of Romans and Greeks talking about this. Some of the Caesars claimed to be this one there were huge communities of people like the Essenes who built cities out in the desert so they could wait there for the Messiah. Everybody knew something was close. Even this lowly woman who is one of those people. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now this is astonishing. It's amazing. It's everything. He says to a woman one step above prostitution, I am he. You know, I don't know who you are, but this makes me know God can love me. God can love anyone. He can and will pour truth out to the lowest of the low. And he will lift them to great heights. 
And this woman, outcast, even in the midst of outcasts, understood this. She lived it. And she was excited. So excited she forgot why she came there. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? When a person who, on the outside, is nothing, suddenly discovers that the living God has made their very spirit new, they do amazing things. She will now worship the Father in spirit and truth. She will. The outcast, that outcast forced out of their lives. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, spoke to her, gave her the living water. Now she's one of those people, those people who belong to the living God. Do we understand how many people out there want to belong to God? They don't want to be those people anymore. Are we not willing to reach out to them with the word of life? Look at this woman ten minutes ago. She was a lost, dirty, outcast sinner. Now she's a child of God's. And she said, i got to tell somebody. <laughs> and she went into the very town that rejected her and said, Jesus told me everything that I ever did. I'm betting in the past. She pretended everything's just fine. I'm just fine. There's nothing wrong with me. <laughs> But now she says, I did all that stuff. I was low. I was nothing. But he still talked to me. He still cared for me. And all that stuff is in my past. For I am now new. Okay, she might not have spoken that well. But <laughs> she did say, don't you want to meet the one who can do that? They went out of the town. And we're coming to him. Luke relates another event where a woman who was a prostitute found her sins forgiven by Jesus. She pours out her love on him. Jesus said of her, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. The lesson for the guy Jesus was talking to and us isn't that some of us don't have very much sin while others have a lot. That's not the lesson. We all have horrific sin. God just kept some of us from doing it. That's the only difference. Maybe the reason we good people have so much trouble telling others about Christ is because we're so stupid we think we are good. <laughs> Maybe the reason we don't get so excited about God's salvation, like both of these women, is that we don't recognize the truth of what Jeremiah said. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But Jesus promised one lonely woman a new heart, a new spirit, one that can worship God in truth. And they, the town people, they saw her worship. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. You know, it's a wonderful thing to share in someone else's joy, someone else's miracle. 
But we all long to have our own hearts touched. They believed because of her, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. A hip town in a nation of outcasts led to Christ by one of those women. <laughs> and they get it. They know the truth in person. What a great joy. But we need to go back to the beginning of this story. Jesus and his disciples left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Had to pass through Samaria. There was a road that went from Judah up to Galilee through Samaria. But it was a mountain road. <laughs> up, down, all around. You know, I've hiked. I know what that means. Most Jews would go east, drop down to Jericho, and take the river road up to the area of Galilee. It was easier. And there were Samaritans in Samaria. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. It wasn't because his GPS plotted out a bad course. Okay, that, in case you were, <laughs> that wasn't what happened. He had to go that way because she was there. That's why he went. It wasn't the geography that drove him. It was his love for one of those people. <laughs> love for a whole hick town of those people. I don't know. Perhaps we should be a little scared if we do not have a burning desire to go where people need to hear about Jesus. How could we really be his if we don't care like he does. After the woman left for town, his disciples showed up. They pulled out the food and were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you entered into their labor. You have entered into their labor. <laughs> That's funny. They're completely oblivious to what that woman now understood. It's not about the physical food. It's about the spiritual. Jesus sent them to a town that was ready to hear the message. And they came back with sandwiches when they should have brought souls. Twelve of them went in and came back with nothing. One poor outcast woman, one of those no less, brought back the true harvest. But Jesus kindly looks to the future when his disciples will reap a great harvest. Some of it right in Samaria, by the way. Then and there, in Samaria, those people were prepared to meet Jesus by... Somebody, I have no idea who. 
Well, obviously, Moses and the prophets, all, you know, all that's in the Bible. But who taught it to them? Don't know. But they were ready to hear the message of salvation. Those people that we run into are usually pretty hardcore, pretty street smart. But it may be that God has softened their hearts with someone else. Or maybe you are the preparation person. You won't see the harvest, well, until the new creation. Whatever the case, we need to purposefully go where people are who need Christ. Somehow, we have to get them involved in life with us. We have to overcome their objections and find an interesting way to introduce that which is outside of their world, the spiritual. We may need to confront their sin. We will have to carefully craft the story to fit their circumstances. But the love of God, without possibility of failure, will draw all who are his. It will. And we might just get to see them completely forget their water pot and run off and tell everybody they know. (laughs) Even the ones who rejected them about Christ. And how he has changed them to be one of those people, those people who love God. How he has made them a part of our family. For we are all who name the name of Christ one of those people. Those people who have heard for ourselves and have come to know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Father, Thank you first for this story of a woman, an outcast in the middle of outcasts. But she wasn't an outcast to you. You loved her so much that you sent your son all the way down here to trudge along a rough mountain road to get to her. To tell her, you are loved. And to allow her to worship you, to change her spirit so that she can worship you. You've done that for most all of us here for sure. Maybe all of us. But there are those who don't know you. But they're looking. They're prepared. Lord, just give us a chance to talk to them. And if we mess up like the disciples did... (laughs) Help us to get back on. Try again. They took years before they got it. Took the death of your son, then his resurrection, and even then the ascension to heaven, and even then the spirit to indwell them before finally they were able to do what they should have done on that day. Help us, Lord, to go through the process, whatever is necessary to become one of your children who can introduce others of yours who just simply aren't there yet. It's the only difference. Help us to help them find you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.